Welcome to the Funny Because It's True podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McGeehan. The show is recorded live every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Storytellers are either predetermined or chosen randomly on the night of the show to tell a true story based on different themes. And this podcast is a mixed bag of some of my favorites. The theme of this episode is failure. That annoying and necessary travel companion on the road to success. Laura McGee tries desperately to have a polite relationship with her stalker. John Banks learns not to get married after two months of knowing someone, and I confront a heckler and give them their comeuppance. But let's not dawdle. First up, Laura McGee. I'm Canadian. Uh, that's not the failure part. <laughs> <laughs> at least from my point of view. Uh, and I've been here about a year and a half, and I've tried really hard to assimilate into American culture, but there all are some differences, uh, especially pertaining to dating. Um, <laughs> and just to give you an indication, back in Canada, um, I once dated a guy for two years just to be polite. So, <laughs> so what happened was that I failed to recognize that I was being stalked here in LA. Um, I just thought that American guys were much more focused. Um, so because I failed to recognize that, I also failed to embrace the victimology of the stalky. So um, for example, you know, when my stalker was following me in traffic, I wouldn't blow through any yellow lights. Um, I was always very conscientious about using turn signals. Um, you know, made his job a lot easier. Um, I didn't defriend him on Facebook, um, even though he liked everything and wrote, you're hot in the comment section, um, even when I posted about my grandfather lapsing into a coma. Um, so that, yeah, that was a little strange. Um, and when he sent me drunken texts at 3 a.m. that said things like, uh, stop ignoring me, bitch, um, I would just do a smiley modicum. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I still wanted things to be civil and pleasant. Um, so needless to say, he became frustrated. Um, and so he cheated on me. He started stalking another girl. Um, so we worked our way through that, but you know, there were some trust issues after that. Um, and then he had to move to another city for his job. Uh, actually, he was deployed to Iraq. So, um, yeah. Service guy, shocking. Um, and you know, you, everyone knows that long distance stalking relationships don't work. Um, I mean, it's not like you can Skype stalk somebody. Um, you could have taken you know, an aerial photograph of me and put it on his computer to talk to. Um, you know, if he, but he really divested himself emotionally at that part. Um, you know, and there are other things he could have done. I mean, he could have you know, sent me a postcard every now and then, you know, wish you were here tied up in my duffel bag. Um, but I really stopped hearing from him. So I thought, you know, we're done with that and I'll move on. And a few weeks ago, uh, he contacted me and he said, um, I just found out where you worked, where you work, and I'm going to apply for a job there. And um, I know that you moved, so tell me your new address. Um, and I said, you know, you can't just like insinuate yourself into my life when I don't want you to and just, you know, completely... Uh, annoy me and he said well actually that's like the very textbook definition of what stalking is so that's that's what I'm doing and then I finally got it and I went oh okay 
yeah, I don't want this. So, um, you know, then I, then I leapt into action. I, I, I let my boss know that he couldn't hire this person. Uh, I alerted security, you know, at my apartment building. Um, I really did try. I tried. But uh, I really felt like it was too little too late, you know, like his heart really wasn't in it at that point. So um, he took a job in Utah instead, and uh, he's out there now. And... I know I failed as a victim, but I really feel, <laughs> you know, like it was a good learning experience for me. Um, one of my favorite authors is F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he has a great quote that says, um, never confuse a single defeat with a final defeat. And, you know, his wife was batshit crazy, so <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. So I'm going to take this defeat as a learning experience, this failure as a learning experience, so that I'm going to be ready for the next time. <laughs> um, and it's L.A., so uh, yeah. it could happen any day now. <laughs> next up, John Banks. In 2006, I got called to jury duty in Los Angeles County. Uh, it was downtown, and if you've never been to jury duty, they put you in this huge room with 150 other people, and you're all just miserably waiting to find out if you're going to be called down to actually go into uh, a room. So I'm sitting there, and, and at this time I had, uh, I had a business that had just tanked. Um, I'm unemployed. I don't want to be there. I haven't had a haircut in months. i got a beard. I'm... <laughs> Uh, I would later a girl would tell me and, and this is no offense to this, uh, this culture but she said I was dressed like an Armenian I, I don't know what that means but um, <laughs> apparently they wear a lot of leather uh, so <clears throat> so I'm sitting there in this room just hating life and I see this gorgeous blonde girl across the room and I figure hey, you know what fuck it I'm going to go talk to her because what else am I going to do so I'm walking over to her, and as I'm walking, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to say to her? What am I going to say to her? And she's eating a bag of pretzels. So I walk over, and I go, hey. And she's reading a magazine, and she literally does this. And I'm like, oh, God. So I go, uh, hey, where'd you get those pretzels? And without saying, <laughs> without saying a word, she like... Points, she never looks up. She points over to a machine of pretzels, and I'm like, all right, great. So I go sit down and think, well, that was fun. Um, well, the day goes on, and there's only 20 minutes left. And I'm thinking, all right, cool. I'm going to get out of this. So there's five minutes left, and they call my name. So I have to go down into this room. So I'm, like, sitting in the back, and they're picking jurors. And this blonde girl who hates me... <laughs> is in there, and I'm thinking, oh, crap, I'm going to be in a jury with some girl who thinks I'm an idiot. Well, it goes, like, I, I, I get picked for the jury selection. I, actually, it's like I, I end up being the second alternate, which basically means if two people in the jury die, I'll end up on the jury. <laughs> um, so, but between, so I get picked, I go home, I cut my hair, I shave, I go back in the next day, and I'm sitting in there, and me, her name was uh, Amy, by the way. I won't use last names, but her name was Amy. And there was a guy named Ed and another girl named Vicky. We all started going to lunch every day. And I'm thinking, okay, great. Since I cut my hair, the blonde girl, Amy, is interested in me. So we, this trial lasts for a month. We end up, like, we start dating, Amy and I, <laughs> right? Um, we get engaged after two months, which everyone knows is such a great choice. <laughs> 
right? No one could know that there was horror to come. So after six months, we're married. But at our wedding, we're sitting there and we're telling the crowd our story. Like, we're telling, like, not the crowd. It's not like, hey, we're at Friday night. At the, we're telling all of our guests, all of our beloved friends and dearest family, you know, kind of how we met. And she tells her side of it, and then I tell my side of it. And she did not realize until that moment that I was that Armenian guy. <laughs> so we get married. And we go on our honeymoon. And a honeymoon, right, is supposed to be this thing where you're just in love with each other and you can't get enough of each other. On the plane flight there, we're both drunk and just hating each other. So we get there. We have our honeymoon. We, and it just, like, it started a series of events where we're sitting there and she literally just turns to me and she's like, wow, we made a mistake, didn't we? And I'm like, yeah, I think we did. <laughs> But we were not going to fail because we just spent a lot of money on this stupid wedding. <sighs> so we decide, okay, we have nothing in common and we're obviously not in love. Let's go to therapy because that's what that's for. So after a year, by the way, that's also a lot of money. Um, so I think at this point, we're a year in, we're about $100,000 in. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of how we felt. Um, so we're sitting there one day, and we're out drinking with a bunch of our friends, and we, we just get into this fight. And it was like, it was a fight where everybody else kind of just backs away, because at first we're like, oh, and then everybody just kind of like, what the hell's going on? And we end up, we walk home, and the whole way home, we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting. Um, it ends in me being thrown out of the house, and I go to, uh, oh God, I end up, uh, like, I, I go to a friend's house, I end up getting an apartment. I spend that Christmas, like, every day, I, my goal, I crack up on a bottle of Jack Daniels, and my goal in life is to finish that bottle by the end of the day. It gets better. <laughs> don't worry. I don't die. Um, so for, after four days of that, uh, a buddy of mine uh, comes over, and he actually helps me finish the, the, the fourth day. Um, and he just looks at me and he says, you know, man, um, you guys are really wrong for each other. You're a really good guy. So what you need to do is go out and just start having sex. <laughs> yeah. So, so the first time I try to do this, I hit on this girl and and I don't know if this has ever happened to any ladies in here, but apparently girls don't like it when you bitch and complain and moan and you're really sad about your current relationship <laughs> ending. But anyway, uh, that was like six years ago. We're actually, she and I uh, became really good friends um, after that. We stay, uh, like, we were much better friends. So the failure was the marriage. Uh, the lesson was don't marry somebody after two months. <laughs> Thank you. And finally, me, Kevin McGeehan. I've failed so many times in my life. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. I will say it's true. I've failed many times in my life, but I've also succeeded many times as well. Uh, and the scales are constantly being balanced. But there's uh, a couple times where I have failed, and then depression sets in. Uh, you just wallow. Uh, things just really uh, just seem terrible. And as a friend of mine put it, one day you wake up, 
and suddenly you feel like shaving again. <laughs> For me, there were many of those times, but there's also other times where the sweetest part of the failure is when you come out on the other side. And for me, there was a moment where this was epitomized when I said six words. How was that? Was that okay? And that became my outlook on every time I failed that I knew that there was going to be something else that was going to change it. So in early 2000, I was working at Second City in Chicago, and I was still uh, working in the box office, trying so hard to get myself noticed enough that I would be promoted to one of the actors in the building, the goal that I had set when I had first moved to Chicago. I was very fortunate because working in the box office, I was there all the time, and I struck up friendships with everyone who was on either the main stage or the ETC stage, and they took a liking to me, uh, so much so that they would have me come up and do the improv sets with them, which was a pretty big deal, um, especially from my point of view, because I was getting to play Major League Baseball. I was double A, and I was getting to be pulled up and play with the big boys, and it was always such an esteemed pleasure for me. And there's a big pressure that's involved with that. So the way the shows work is it's two acts of a scripted show. The audience has two hours to fall in love with the six people up on stage. And then at the end of the show, there's an improv set for about 40 minutes, and sometimes guests are invited up. You are at a distinct disadvantage because as you are introduced and brought up on stage, the audience has not fallen in love with you at this point. You're just some dude. <laughs> so one night, I was just some dude who came up on stage, and... I was very confident and I was very excited to do this because, like I said, it was an esteemed pleasure to do. And I went out on stage and I started a scene with uh, someone else. And then I got pimped into playing an evangelical preacher. Now, me, being limited in sometimes of my characters, I started going the stereotypical route of the, oh, my parishioners, la, 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 doing that big grandiose voice. And then... I started going on it for so long. I did about three or four sentences just going off on this whole tone. And then I stopped hoping that I was going to get a laugh. And then I didn't. The room was completely silent. And then one woman in the front row, house right, stage left, piped up, that's not funny. Now, in her defense, she was absolutely correct. <laughs> but in my defense, we all knew it already. There was no need to articulate it. <laughs> Thinking on my feet because I was already out there, I just burst into, oh, I see one of my parishioners has an opinion. And I went down and started talking to her and continued on my path of that character. And she just kept looking at me like I was an idiot. But then everybody else on stage did something that was very cool, and they all backed me up. And they acted literally and figuratively. They all came behind me and made a circle behind me and then just started yelling at her. <laughs> Going on, and it kept escalating till actually there was a crescendo of one very tall man in the back. It ended with, you fucking whore. <laughs> so at this point, I am mortified. I walk to the back line, uh, everybody else disperses, and then another scene starts, and I'm in the back line just thinking, oh my God, I cannot believe I messed that up so badly. My heart is beating, I am sweating, and I just don't want to go out there again. I just, I already failed, I, I can't do it, I cannot face these people again because everybody knows this guy ain't funny. 
So I stood in the back for another two scenes, and then I just told myself, screw it. If you want to keep doing these sets, you cannot be the guy that failed and then just cowered in the back. I have to walk forward, and I have to do one again. So I walked forward, and I started another scene. And then I was on the ground on stage right, house left. I was on the ground, and I was doing like a meat grinder. And then a, the woman I was with in the scene, I started it. I said a line. She said a line. And then I said a line after that that got a laugh. And it was, if I may be so bold, very clever what I said. <laughs> and the laugh started to grow. It was one of those very cool rolling laughs where then everybody started laughing. And the whole room just erupted. And it was unbelievable. In a moment of just pure inspiration, as I am over here, I yell, freeze, jump up, walk over to the woman, kneel down in front of her and say, how was that? Was that okay? <laughs> and she looked at me and still in her drunken state said, no, it's not. And then everybody else started applauding. And as I walked back to my space, I said, well, maybe it is. <laughs> And then I got back, said unfreeze, and then started the scene right where it was. Now that to me began to epitomize my view on failure, that there are times you're going to fail, as I did at the very beginning of that, but it is even sweeter when you come out on the other side and there are other times where you place significance on things, and I place a lot of significance on this moment because I know for a fact that when I do fail, there's going to be something else I do that's going to be better because of that failure. I can always think to myself when I look at the naysayers after they've seen it, how was that? Was that okay? Thank you. That's it. That's our show. Special thanks to our storytellers, Laura McGee and John Banks. Also thanks to Josh Callahan, Mark Warzeka, The Second City Hollywood, and the Comedy Podcast Network for producing the show. You can like Funny Because It's True on Facebook to find out upcoming show dates and themes. All the past episodes are available for free download on the Comedy Podcast Network and iTunes. While on iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a comment about the show. The more comments help the show grow to a broader audience on iTunes, plus it appeases my staunch desire for approval and acceptance. If you would ever like to see the live show, Funny Cause It's True is every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood located on historic and mildly slutty Hollywood Boulevard. So come out. Put your name in contention, and maybe you'll get chosen to tell a true story on stage. And from there, get chosen to be on the podcast. My name is Kevin McGeehan. Thanks for listening. You have received this transmission from the Comedy Podcast Network. For more shows, visit ComedyPodcastNetwork.com.